We will now hear argument in Ashcroft against uh, Reich. Uh, General Clement. Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. Through the Controlled Substances Act, Congress has comprehensively regulated the national market in drugs with a potential for abuse. And with respect to Schedule I substances like marijuana that have both a high potential for abuse and no currently accepted medical use in treatment, Congress categorically prohibits interstate trafficking outside the narrow and carefully controlled confines of federally approved research programs. Well, Mr. Clement, the, um, I, I think it is reasonably clear that Congress spoke very broadly in, in the Act, and the question for me turns on whether Lopez and Morrison dictate uh, some concerns with its application in this context. Well, with respect, Justice O'Connor, I don't think either Lopez or Morrison cast any doubt on the constitutionality of the Controlled Substances Act. And I think in particular that's because the, the decisions in Lopez and Morrison cited with approval cases like Darby and Wickard and preserved those cases. And, of course, the concurring opinion of well, Justice Kennedy did so as well. Well, of course, you had a wheat grower a small farmer, and his wheat did in part go in the national market. You don't have that here. Uh, as I understand it, if California's law applies, then none of this homegrown for medical use marijuana will be on any interstate market. And it is in the area of something traditionally regulated by states. So, how do you distinguish Morrison, and how do you distinguish Lopez? Well, Justice O'Connor, let me first say that I think it might be a bit optimistic to think that none of the marijuana that's produced consistent with California law would be diverted into the national market for marijuana. And, of course, the Controlled Substances Act is concerned at almost every step of the Act with a concern about diversion, both of lawful substances from medical to non-medical uses and from controlled substances under Schedule I well, into the national in, in market. Well, looking at this broad challenge, do we have to assume that the State of California will enforce its law? I mean, if, if it turns out that it isn't and that uh, marijuana is getting in the interstate market, that might be a different thing. Well, with respect, Justice O'Connor, on this record, I don't think that there's any reason to assume that California is going to have some sort of almost unnatural ability to keep one part of a fungible national drug market separate. And I think Congress here made important findings that you've alluded to, not just that there's a national market, not just that the interstate and the interstate markets are linked, but that drugs are fungible. And that because drugs are fungible, it's simply not feasible, in Congress's words, to regulate and separately focus on only drugs that have traveled on interstate commerce. General Clement, what if we were to assume, I'm not saying this is the correct, that the district court could find that there is a narrow segment of the market in which they could prevent diversions, and they say they made such findings. Would we have to disregard them or say they're irrelevant? I think you would say they're irrelevant, Justice Stevens, and that's because — But then why do you need to rely on the, on the possibility of diversion? Well, because I think it is a reality in responding to Justice O'Connor's question. I think that in, in, obviously in all of these commerce but, but plus — But my hypothesis, it's a non-existent reality. Well, in, in your hypothetical, and if I could turn to that, I still think the analysis would not turn on whether or not the truth of the supposition that diversion could be prevented. 
because this Court, in a series of cases, including Darby, Wickard, Wirtz, and Perez, has made clear that the relevant focal point for analysis is not the individual plaintiff's activities and whether they have a substantial effect on interstate commerce, but whether, whether the class of activities that Congress has decided to regulate has such a substantial effect. And in this case, there's no question that the overall production, distribution, and possession of marijuana and other Schedule I substances has a profound effect on interstate commerce. It's not, it's not an interstate commerce that you want to foster. I mean, in these other, in these other cases, uh, Congress presumably wanted to foster interstate commerce in wheat in Wickard versus Filburn. Congress doesn't want interstate commerce in marijuana. And it seems rather ironic to, uh, to appeal to the fact that uh, homegrown marijuana would reduce the interstate commerce that you don't want to occur in order to regulate it. I mean, you know, doesn't that strike you as strange? Well, no, it doesn't, Justice Scalia, but let me respond in two ways. First of all, I think it's been clear, at least since the lottery case, that Congress's authority to regulate interstate commerce includes the authority to prohibit items traveling in interstate commerce and to declare something contraband in interstate commerce. Absolutely. And I would suggest that it is a perfectly rational exercise of Congress's judgment to treat marijuana and other Schedule I substances not just as contraband in interstate commerce, but as contraband simpliciter, as contraband for all purposes. But that's quite a different rationale than from Wickard versus Filburn. I mean, it seems to me you're not — you're not appealing to the fact that it has a substantial impact on interstate commerce. You're appealing to the fact that the power which Congress has to, uh, uh, to, to prohibit, uh, the, uh, the use of uh, goods, uh, carried in interstate commerce, it cannot effectively be, uh, implemented without this law. Well, I think there's some truth to that, Justice Scalia, but let me say this. I think what I'm saying is I'm taking the rationale that this Court accepted in Wickard and I'm applying it to a different regulatory regime. Here, You're Congress is not primarily — opposite kind of regulatory You're applying it to a regulatory regime in which the government wants to prohibit uh, this uh, subject uh, substance from being sold or uh, in interstate commerce. And if you just follow the letter, letter of this law — this marijuana won't get into interstate commerce. In fact, it would reduce the demand for marijuana because it would supply these local users and they wouldn't have to go into the interstate market. Well, with respect, Justice Stevens, if you took a look at the Controlled Substances Act itself and read it literally, you'd assume that there was absolutely no market period in Schedule One substances. But the reality is there's a $10.5 billion market illegal market, albeit, but market in marijuana in the United States on an annual basis. But so, to the extent that this this uh, statute has any impact, it will reduce the purchase in the interstate market and confine these to locally grown uh, marijuana. Well, first of all, Justice Stevens, that's only true if there will be no diversion, to get back to your assumption. Then I'm assuming my hypothetical is that California could pass a law that would prevent diversions from occurring. Well, in, in the same way that the federal government has, has had trouble stamping out the marijuana market entirely, I think California is going to have parallel problems in absolutely preventing diversion. But just to, to — I, I, I suppose some of, uh, one answer to that case is the Perez case with loan sharking. Oh, oh, absolutely, Justice Kennedy. And in that context, what this Court said is even though it was focused on what was going to be in that, both in that case and generally an interstate activity — Congress did not have to just look at the particular plaintiff's effect on interstate commerce, but rather the effect of the entire class of activities. And if I as, res- as Justice O'Connor brought out earlier, all those cases, Wickard, Paris, they all involve a commercial enterprise. 
And here we're told this is different because nobody is buying anything, nobody is selling anything. Well, with respect, Justice Ginsburg, I think the whole point of the Wickard case was to extend rationales that had applied previously to commerce to activity that the Court described as economic but not commercial. And I think the production and, and distribution and possession of marijuana is economic in the same way that the production of wheat was in the Wickard case. But you're, mm. No, I was going to say, your, your whole point, I, I take it, is that, that the, the, the two particular uh, patients in this case are simply, simply cannot be taken for our purposes as representative uh, in, in, in the, the fact that they're getting the marijuana by either growing it themselves or being given it. You're, you're saying you cannot take that fact as a fact from which to generalize in deciding this case. That's exactly right, Justice Souter, and, and that is the logic not just of me, but of this Court's cases in cases like Darby and Wickard and Wirtz and Perez. And I point to the Wickard case in particular only because it, too, involves a non-commercial enterprise or a non-commercial production of wheat. Well, I do take issue with that. As I read the record in Wickard, it involved a small farmer. A portion of his wheat went on the interstate market. It also was fed to cattle, which in turn went on the interstate market. He used some of it himself, but part of it was commercial. I think Wickard can be distinguished on the facts. Well, Justice O'Connor, it could be dis- — I mean, any case can be distinguished on the facts, of course. But I think what's important is this Court in Wickard itself recognized that the case was almost — it was only interesting because a portion of the regulated wheat involved wheat that was going to be consumed on the farm. And, and — State commerce. Well, th- that's true, Justice O'Connor, but with this Court basically, in its opinion, Justice Jackson for the Court put aside to one side all of the, the grain that was going to go in interstate commerce and said that's easy under our existing precedents. This case is only interesting, he said, because it involves wheat that's going to be consumed on the farm. And he specifically talked about both the, the, the wheat that would be fed to the animals, but also the wheat that would be consumed by the family. And what he said is the intended disposition of the particular wheat wasn't clear from the record of the case. And by that, I take him to mean that it wasn't relevant to the Court's analysis in upholding the Agricultural Adjustment Act to the wheat at issue there. And it's important to recognize that the way the Agricultural Adjustment Act worked is it applied to all the wheat that was grown in excess of the quota. And so it applied to the wheat that was used by the family for consumption of their own bread. And nonetheless, this Court upheld that as, as, as a valid Commerce Clause regulation. And so I think by parity of reasoning, all of the marijuana that's at issue and covered by the Controlled Substances Act, whether it's lawful under state law, whether it's involved in a market transaction or not, is fairly within the Congress's Commerce Clause is, is authority. Is this a harder or easier case than Wickard when we know that in Wickard it was lawful to buy and sell wheat, uh, and here it is unlawful to buy and sell marijuana? Well, Justice does, Kennedy — Does this make your case easier, in a sense? I think it does, Justice Kennedy, because as I said earlier in responding to a question from Justice Scalia, I think if you're talking about a context where Congress has the undoubted power to prohibit something in interstate commerce entirely and has exercised that power, so it treats something as effectively contraband in interstate commerce — and then takes the complementary step, especially in light of the fungibility of the product, and says, we're just going to treat this as contraband simpliciter. I think that judgment by Congress has a very definite link to interstate commerce and its unquestioned authority to regulate interstate commerce. And I do think there's a sense in which when Congress is regulating the price of something, 
There's certainly a temptation to excise out relatively small producers and for Congress to say, well, we can still have effective regulation if we regulate the vast majority of production. But with respect to something that's unlawful to have and and has very significant risks precisely because it's unlawful, any little island of lawful possession of non-contraband marijuana, for example, poses a real challenge to the statutory regime. It would also, I think, frustrate Congress's goal in promoting health. And I think the clearest example of that is the fact that to the extent there is anything that is beneficial health-wise in marijuana, it's THC, which has been isolated and provided in a pill form and is available as a Schedule Three substance called marijuana. But there is, uh, in this record, a showing that for at least one of the two plaintiffs, there were some 30-odd drugs taken. None of them worked. This was the only one that would. And it, Justice Souter asked you about these two plaintiffs. The law can't be made on the basis of those two plaintiffs. But let's suppose that you're right generally. If there were to be a prosecution of any of the plaintiffs in this case, would there be any defense if there were to be a federal prosecution? Well, Justice Ginsburg, I think we would take the position based on our reading of the Oakland cannabis case. And and obviously, different justices on this Court read the opinion differently and had different views on the extent to which the medical necessity defense was foreclosed by that opinion. I would imagine the federal government in that case, if it took the unlikely step of bringing the prosecution in the first place, would be arguing that on the authority of Oakland cannabis, the medical necessity defense was not available. But I think in any event, what is important at this point is that we don't have a prosecution. We have an affirmative effort to strike down the Controlled Substances Act in an injunctive action. And I think in that context, certainly Justice Souter's right that, that this Court's precedents make clear that one doesn't consider only the individual's conduct, but the entire class of activities that's at issue. I think in this regard, it's also worth emphasizing that a deeper flaw in the respondent's argument that California law is somehow relevant here or the fact that their conduct is lawful under California law is that there's a mismatch between what California law makes lawful and what might be considered relevant for arguing that there's an attenuated effect on interstate commerce. Because the California law makes the possession of marijuana for medical use lawful under state law without regard to whether that marijuana has been involved in a cash transaction or has crossed state lines. And so if respondents are right in their Commerce Clause theory, I don't see how they can be right because their conduct is lawful under state law or because their marijuana use is medical. If they're right, then I think their analysis would extend to recreational use of marijuana as well as medical use of marijuana and would extend to every state in the nation, not just those I states think, that made it law. doesn't it depend on how you define the relevant class of activities? Is it the entire class that Congress ought to regulate, or is it a narrower class in which the plaintiffs contend that the statute cannot constitutionally be applied to a particular very narrowly defined class. And is it ever permissible to define the class narrowly to escape a, the, the broad argument that you make? Well, I don't think that is permissible, Justice Stevens. I think that's what this Court's case is in Wirtz, in so Darby, and Wickard This statute could never have an unconstitutional application. Under the Commerce Clause, I, that's exactly right. That would be our position. It is constitutional on its face, and, it, and, and because of the, that line of authority, an as-applied challenge can be brought, 
But the legal test that's applied in the as-applied challenge is one that considers the constitutionality of the statute as a whole. But in Morrison, did the Court's opinion not say that Congress cannot justify Commerce Clause clause legislation by using a long but-for causal chain from the activity in question to an impact on interstate commerce? I mean, the Court certainly made that statement. Oh, absolutely, Justice O'Connor. Which cuts against what you're saying. Well, with respect, I don't think so. And and I'd say two things about it. One, this Court in Morrison and Lopez was very important to emphasize, thought it was very important to emphasize two things. One, that the activity there was non-economic in a way that differentiated it even from Wickard. And second, the Court also made it clear that the regulation there there was not essential to the effectiveness of an overall regulatory scheme. And I think on both points, this case is on the constitutional side of the line that separates the Lopez and the Morrison case. The argument on the other side is that this limited exception is a non-economic use, growing uh, for personal use under prescription. I understand understand that's their argument, Justice O'Connor, but I don't understand how this Court in Lopez could have said that Wickard involved non-economic activity if this activity is, is not also covered. You're talking about involved the, economic activity. I'm sorry if I misspoke. Economic activity, because what you're talking about here is the possession, the manufacture, the distribution of a valuable commodity for which there is a ready, unfortunately, a ready market, albeit an illicit market. If, if we rule for the respondents in this case, do you think the street price of marijuana would go up or down in California? Uh, I, I would be speculating, Justice Kennedy, but I think the price would go down. And I think that, that what we, and that in a sense is consistent with the government's position, which is to say when the government thinks that something is dangerous, it tries to prohibit it. Part of the effort of prohibiting it is going to lead to a black market where the prohibition actually would force the price up. And there is a sense in which this regulation, although not primarily designed as a price regulation, the, the Controlled Substance Act, I think, does have the effect of increasing the price for marijuana in a way that stamps down demand and limits the and, 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 and in a way that, that, that reduces demand. And I think that's all consistent with Congress's judgment here. And if, if I could return for a second to the, to the point about Marinol, what's important there is that the process of manufacturing of Marinol and isolating the one helpful component does two things. One, the manufacturing process allows there to be a safe use for one of the components in marijuana. But it also provides an unambiguous hook for Congress to exercise its Commerce Clause authority. And yet the overall regime of trying to get people to use more healthful substances and not use things like crude marijuana that have harmful effects is undermined if Congress can't also address that which is more harmful, but is distinct only because it is capable of being locally produced. And that's exactly what crude marijuana is. In other words, the statute is tr- is, trumps the independent judgments of the physicians who prescribe it for the patients at issue in this case. Well, I think in responding to that, Justice Stevens, I would say obviously from purposes of federal law, uh, the idea of medical marijuana is something of an oxymoron because the federal government treats it as a Schedule I substance. Now, notwithstanding that, some Doctors may make a different judgment about a particular patient. But that's something that this Court, I think, has previously understood, that the federal regulatory regime does not allow individual patients or doctors to exempt themselves out of that regime. I think that's the import of the Rutherford decision with Leia. Do you think there could be any state of facts on which a judicial tribunal could disagree with the finding of Congress that there's no acceptable medical use, say they had 
say they, there was a judicial hearing in which they made a contrary finding. Would we have to ignore that? Would we have to follow the congressional finding or the judicial finding if that happened? Well, it depends on the exact hypothetical you have in mind. I think the, the, the judicial finding that I think would be appropriate, and this Court would not have to uh, ignore in any way, is a finding by the D.C. Circuit uh, that in a particular case where there's a rescheduling effort before the FDA, that the underlying judgment of the FDA refusing to reschedule is invalid, arbitrary, capricious. That's the way to go after the finding that, that marijuana is a Schedule I substance without a valid medical use and treatment. This is not a situation, and, and your hypothetical might respond to a different statute that raised a harder question, where Congress made such a medical finding and then just left it there without any mechanism to adjust the finding for changing realities. But here Congress made it clear that a process remains open to reschedule marijuana in a way that gets it onto Schedule Two or Schedule Three. And I think it's wrong to assume that there's any inherent hostility to the substances at issue here. I mean, the FDA, for example, uh, rescheduled Marinol from Schedule 2 to Schedule 3 in a way that had the effect of making it easier to prescribe and more available. But I think what's going on with the FDA is an effort to try to counterbalance the risk for abuse, the risk for diversion, with these other considerations of getting safe medicine available to patients. Have there been any applications to change the schedule? for marijuana to the FDA? There have been a number of those petitions that have been filed. Uh, there was one recently rejected, I think as recently as, as 2001, maybe 1999. There was also a series of a, a kind of a four or five iteration effort to change the rescheduling that culminated in a D.C. Circuit opinion in the early 90s. So there's definitely been these efforts, but on the current state of the, med- of, of, of the record, there just is not a justification for sca- changing the schedule. And I think both of the briefs talked a little bit about the Institute of Medicine study about the medical efficacy of marijuana. And I think one thing that's important to keep in mind that that study comes to a conclusion about is that whatever benefits there may be for the individual components in marijuana, that smoked smoked marijuana itself really doesn't have any future as medicine. Because, and, and that's true, I think, for two reasons. One, there's something like 400 different chemical components in crude marijuana that one would smoke. And it's, it's, it's just sort of belies any logic that all 400 of those would be helpful. And a big part of the process of medicine generally is to take raw, crude material that somebody could grow in their garden and actually have people who do this for a living get involved in a process of synthesizing and isolating the beneficial components and then manufacturing and making that available. The second reason that smoked marijuana doesn't have much of a future as medicine is, is as I think people understand, smoking is harmful. And that's true of tobacco, but it's also true of marijuana. And so the idea that smoked marijuana would be an effective delivery device for, mar- for medicine, I think, is also something that really doesn't have any future as medicine. What does have a future for medicine, of course, is an effort to synthesize and isolate the beneficial component that's been done with Marinol. It is true that some people have difficulty uh, tolerating the pill form that Marinol is available in. And there's ongoing research to try to figure out different ways to deliver that substance. But there is, in a sense, a little bit of — in the Institute of Medicine study has about five pages discussing Marinol, and it makes the point that there's something of a trade-off, because one of the downsides of Marinol, as opposed to marijuana, is that it takes longer to get into the bloodstream. But that's also one of the reasons why the FDA has made a judgment that Marinol is less subject to abuse, 
because it, it takes longer to get into the drug stream, and so it doesn't have the characteristic of street drugs that tend to be abused, which is a very quick delivery time between the taking of the substance and the time that it has an effect on the system. May I go back to your point a few minutes ago about uh, sort of a category point? You, in effect, said if this argument uh, succeeds with respect to medical use of marijuana, the next argument is going to be recreational use, and there's no real way to distinguish between them. Wouldn't this be a way to distinguish between them, that in deciding what class you are going to or what subclass you are going to consider uh, from which to generalize, uh, you simply ask the question, what good reasons are there to define a subclass this way? In this particular case, the good reasons to define a subclass of medical usage are the benefits, whether you accept the evidence is another thing, but the benefits which the doctors say that under present circumstances you can get from smoking it uh, as opposed to taking the, the, uh, the, the synthesized drug. There's no such argument, I, I would guess, uh, in favor of recreational marijuana usage as a separate category. And for that reason, uh, isn't, there a, isn't there a good reason to categorize this as narrowly uh, as the respondents are doing here, just medical usage without any risk of generalizing to recreational usage? With respect, Justice Souter, I don't think that it would be a good idea for this Court to get on a path of starting to second-guess Congress's judgment about defining the class of activity. That, that may — oh, that may be, but it seems to me that that's a separate argument, because you're, you were arguing before that if you recognize medical usage, you don't have any way of drawing the line against private recreational usage. And I'm suggesting that you do have a reason for drawing that line, and it's the benefit from medical usage if you accept the evidence, whereas there is no reason to categorize recreational usage separately. And, and, and that seems to me a category argument rather than a respect for Congress argument. Well, Justice Souter, I have no doubt that this Court could draw a line. I think it would find it very difficult to police that line over the broad variety of cases. I think it would find it every bit as frustrating as policing the line in Hammer against Dagenhart that this Court abandoned in, in Darby. With, uh, with that, I'd like to reserve my time for rebuttal. Mr. Barnett. Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. I have two points to make. First, the class of activities involved in this case are non-economic and wholly intrastate. Second, the federal prohibition of this class of activities is not essential, is not an essential part of a larger regulatory scheme that would be undercut unless the intrastate activity were regulated. If you accept the government's contrary contentions on either of these two points, Ashcroft versus Raich will replace Wickard versus Filburn as the most far-reaching example of Commerce Clause authority over interstate activity. Well, on, on, on your first point, um, can't we infer from the fact that there's an enormous market, commercial market, for any given commodity, uh, that simple possession of that commodity is a form of participation in the market? It can be or it might not be. If you possess an item that came from the market or is going to the market, simple possession could easily be a part of the marketplace. But if you're in possession of an item that you've made yourself that is disconnected from the market, it didn't come from the market, and it's not going to well, the market. Well, but it's fungible. That 
the, the fungibility issue is in this case. But the, fun, but the, uh, the fact that a good is fungible does not make it a market good, and it does not make the possession of that good an economic activity. Well, or, uh, you know, Congress has, has applied this theory in other contexts. Uh, one is uh, the, the protection of endangered species. Congress has made it unlawful to possess ivory, for example. Doesn't matter whether you got it lawfully or not, or eagle feathers. The mere possession of it, whether you got it through interstate commerce or not. And Congress's reasoning is we can't tell whether it came through interstate commerce or not. And to try to prove that is just beyond our ability. And therefore, it is unlawful to possess it, period. Now, are, are, are those, uh, are those laws likewise uh, unconstitutional as, as going beyond Congress's commerce power? Not if they're an essential part of a larger regulatory scheme that would be undercut unless those activities are reached. What, when, what, why is that different from this? Because these, this class of activities, because it's been isolated by the State of California and is policed by the State of California so that it's entirely separated from the market. Isolated and ple- I, I understand that, that there are some communes that, 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 that grow marijuana for for the medical use of all of the members of the communes. That class of activities is not before the court. That is actually before. Oh, but it's before the court when you when you raise the the policing of the of the problem by California and saying it's not a it's not a real problem. You brought it before the court. But that class of activities could be could be if this court limits its ruling to the class of activities that is before the court. Which is class, which is what? Which is the, an individual grower? Uh, individual who is growing it for her, him or herself. Who has a, or has a caregiver growing it for her. Gee, what, what, for basis, what basis is there to draw it that narrowly? I, I, I mean, there, I guess we, we could say people whose, whose last name begins with a Z. You know, that would narrow the category, too. But why does, why does that make any sense? Justice Scalia, we believe it makes sense because we are talking about a, cl- a classification of activities that has been identified by the State of California and which is rational to distinguish oh, but from California rec- hasn't, hasn't identified individual growers. It, it, communes are okay as far as California law is concerned. Well, it's, it's not entirely clear whether communes are okay as far as California Why, why wouldn't it be? Because if, in fact, commercial activity is taking place, if buying and selling is taking no, place. No, no, they're not buying and selling. I mean, you can't prove they're buying and selling. There's just a whole lot of people there uh, uh, with, with alleged medical needs. I, I don't understand. Uh, is there any authority in the commerce cases for uh, an X, which is there in the middle of a state, and it doesn't move one way or the other? Now, Congress's power does extend to the X if the state doesn't say something about the X. But if the state says something about the X, then Congress's power does not extend to it. That's hard for me to accept because I don't see whether it's commerce or not commerce, whether it affects something or doesn't affect something, doesn't seem to me to have much to do with whether the state separately regulates it, and I can't find any support at all for that in any case. The support would come from the exception to Lopez and Morrison that the government is urging that the Court adopt, that that the Congress can reach non-economic activity that's intrastate, that's wholly intrastate, if doing so is essential to a larger regulatory scheme that would be undercut if they can't reach it. Well, here they say, but I, I take it you're using this because I was going to ask you. You know, he grows heroin, cocaine, tomatoes that are going to have genomes in them that could at some point lead to tomato children 
that will eventually uh, affect Boston. You know, we can oil that's never, in fact, being used, but we want an inventory of it federally. You know, I can multiply the examples, well, and you can too. So, so you're going to get around all those examples by saying what? By saying that it's all going to depend on the regulatory scheme. What the no. purpose of so the now? What you're saying is, in a commerce clause case, what we're supposed to do is to start to look at the federal scheme and the state scheme and see, comparing the federal scheme and the state scheme, whether given the state scheme, the federal scheme is really necessary to include this. That's a task, and I'm trying to make it as complicated as I can in my question. But I see it very well. Here's what they say. They say that, by the way, 100,000 people using medical marijuana in California will lead to lower marijuana prices in the nation. Bad. And second, when we see medical marijuana in California, we won't know what it is. Everybody will say, mine is medical. Certificates will circulate on the black market. We face a mess. For both those reasons, it does have an impact, they say. Now, what's your response? Well, you've raised at least two different practical issues. One is the fact the number of people who are in the class, and the second is the ability to identify whether they properly belong in the class. As for the number of people, we are talking about a very small number of people. Um, they say 100,000. They get their figures from the National Organization for Reform of Marijuana Laws. Our figures in our brief come from the government. The, our, the figures show it's a very small fraction of persons that would be involved. And their argument is basically — and the the logic of your hypothetical is premised on the more people that go into the illicit market, the better for federal drug policy, because that will drive the price up. You have to — what we're we're doing is we're we're taking people out of the illicit drug market, which then, under your hypothetical, would lead to a reduction — and Justice Kennedy's suggestion would lead to a reduction in the price of the illegal market, which the opposite would be there, there it's good for federal policy to have more people in the illicit drug market, because that's going to drive oh, the no, price up. no, we don't want more people of course in the not. illicit drug market. Of course not. And, and we don't want low prices either. But the, but the, but the, but the, but the scheme, uh, the, but, but the, the class of activities that have been authorized by the State of California will take people out so of the So normally I would have market. said it's up to Congress to figure out how to the way that you have one going one way, one going the other way, and balancing those factors would be for Congress. That's what we'd normally say. Well, you say all that stuff is not for Congress, that's for us. Well, within this exception, that's been, the threshold issue, I, I do want to make sure that I focus on this. The threshold issue, which is the issue that has occupied most of our time so far, is whether the activity here is economic or non-economic. The government claims it's economic, we claim it's non-economic. Well, it, what it is, is it's non-economic, and it affects the economic. Right. So the, the threshold issue that is that upon which Lopez and Morrison terms, turns is whether it's economic or non-economic. Well, I, I should have no, thought that regular uh, household chores, uh, say, performed um, in an, in an uh, earlier time, mostly by women, was classically economic: washing dishes, making bread. And if, now you say growing marijuana isn't. Uh, if you accept the government's definition of economic, then, ev- then washing dishes today would be economic. No, and but that even would be within the with, within the power of Congress to reach. But even if we accept your definition of economic, I don't see that it is a basis upon which we ought to make a category decision. You say it's non-economic because one of these people is is a, is, is a self-grower; another one is getting it from a, a friend for nothing. 
But I don't see what reason that you have given or any reason that you haven't given for us to believe uh, that out of, and I'm going to assume for the sake of argument, 100,000 potential users, everybody is going to get it from a friend or from plants in the backyard. Seems to me the sensible assumption is they're going to get it on the street. And once they get it, under California law, it's not a crime for them to have it and use it. But they're going to get it in the street. Why isn't that the sensible assumption here? Well, they have an incentive. They have a very strong incentive not to get it on the street, because getting it on the street is going to subject them to criminal prosecution under both California and federal law. As yeah, well as but the, the, the <laughs> it's also the case that approximately 10 percent of the American population is doing that every day. Uh, if, if I accept the figures in the government's brief, and they're not getting prosecuted. But we're talking, in that case, we're talking about people who are, who are using it for sport, for recreation. We are talking about a class of people here who are sick people, who don't necessarily want to violate. And if I am a sick person, I'm going to say, look, if they're not prosecuting every kid who buys what, what a nickel bag or whatever you call a small quantity today, they're not going to prosecute me either. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's not going to be any incentive, it seems to me, to avoid the street market. The, the government, in their brief, asserts that the, the, the possession statute that currently exists provides a deterrent effect, which is, why they, which is their explanation for why they fail to enforce the possession statute that they say is so essential to the regulatory if one, scheme. one takes your view that this is non-economic activity, so it's outside Congress's commerce power, then explain to me why, if you have someone Similarly situated in a neighboring state, somebody whose doctor says this person needs marijuana to live. But that state doesn't have a Compassionate Use Act. It's just as isolated, no purchase, no sale, grown at home, good friend grows it. And yet you say Congress could regulate that, if I understand your brief properly. Yes, yes, Your Honor, because there's the, that's the second step of the analysis. The first step of the analysis is the economic, non-economic. If, it don't, if the court stops there, then they could also apply in these other states. But then if the court adopts — if, if, you, if you buy that — so your first answer is yes. On your first argument, it would be equally impermissible for the feds to regulate medical use anywhere. Yes, Your Honor. All right. Now you're going to have some limiting — but the limiting principle is the one that was identified by the court in Lopez in which the government is asserting, that if it's an essential part of a broader regulation of economic activity to reach this activity, then it may be reached. And the difference between states in which there is a state law enforcement that's confining the class and that there is a discrimination between legal and non-legal use is completely different from a practical enforcement standpoint than a state in which there is no differentiation. Just think of the, the existence, for example, of identi- identification cards, which the state of California is going to be issuing like driver's license cards. Yeah, but it doesn't right now, and that doesn't make the scheme less valid in your view. Well, because, but this is the sort of regulation, the sort of effectiveness of the regulation that will be at issue and which is in fact, I believe the court should be in the position of trusting the state of California to be able to administer its regime. There is no regime in other states to trust, and therefore the argument that it is necessary to reach that activity and a lot of other activity in states in which the states are not attempting to 
pursue the health of their citizens, the goal of preserving the health of their citizens this way, that would fall under the exception which this Court suggested in Lopez and This is a new framework, I take it, and it's very interesting. And one of the things that interests me, I guess, on your framework, Lopez should have come out my way. Well, it's essential to uh, regulate guns in schools as part of a national gun control regulatory. Justice Breyer, that's the reason why that exception has to be narrowly treated. Uh, So it doesn't reach your result. Um, If if that exception were treated as broadly as you suggested that it should be in your dissent in Morrison, then the game is up. The exception will swallow the rule, and Lopez and Morrison will be limited to their facts. I thought we didn't need to reach all that here for the reason that the connection here, which is an enforcement-related connection and a market-related connection, uh, is actually, I have to confess, a little more obvious and a little more close than what I had to, what I had to say in, Lo- in, in Lopez to, uh, was the connection between guns, education, communities, and business. So I, I would have thought, given the — and I believe that, you know, but I mean, but that was — far further than this, which is just direct. But this case is completely unlike those cases. This case is completely isolated. In Lopez, that gun probably did come through interstate commerce. Not that I believe it should have made any difference, but it probably did. Here we're talking about substances that don't. So there's, there's just no literal connection between this class of activities and this interstate market. Uh, we didn't decide that in Lopez on the basis of uh whether the gun had come in interstate commerce, if, if the statute in question had applied only to guns that had been transported in interstate commerce, the case might have come out differently. I, I, no doubt. I, I, and I wasn't suggesting otherwise, Justice Scalia. I'm just suggesting that here we have — exactly, that if there had been that interstate connection in Lopez, the case might have come out different. There is no interstate connection whatsoever in this class of cases. None. The only way to make it an interstate connection is through some sort of hypothetical economic substitution effect in which somebody who's doing something over here is going to have an effect on somebody else who's doing something over there. There is no connection. Sounds like Wickard to me. Well, Wickard, Your Honor. <laughs> I always used to laugh at Wickard, but that's, uh, that's what Wickard said. Wickard, had he not eaten the wheat, it would have been in interstate commerce. Had that case been about eating wheat, that case would never have arisen. That's what it was about as far as the Court's analysis was concerned. To be sure, there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot more use of the wheat on, on his farm other than just uh, a human consumption. But, but it seems to me the analysis of the case, uh, said you take it, you take it out of the stream of commerce uh, by growing it yourself. Uh, you, you make it unnecessary for your — to buy it in interstate commerce. It's — the entire analysis, the entire proof that the Court relied upon in Wickard was proof of the economic impact of home-consumed wheat on the farms. And by home-consumed, it did not mean eating at the family — at the family table. It meant feeding to your livestock and then putting it at your livestock. Change phrase uh, to mean feeding to livestock? But, but home-consumed is feed it to your pig? But yes, that's exactly what that's exactly what that general term how that general term was used in the case. What the court said, I take it, and I quoted a lot of the language there, and it says that the wheat farmers' consumption of homegrown wheat, not the part that went in, quote, though it may not be regarded as commerce, yes, end sir. quote, still can be regulated, quote, whatever its nature, 
so long as, quote, it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. Now, that's the language, and I take it that Justice Scalia is exactly right, I thought, from that language. It's about the analysis, homegrown wheat, which is not economic, having an effect on something that is. Uh, with all respect. Which is not commerce. Sorry, not commerce. With all respect, well, that's, I was about to make that uh, that, well, the Commerce Clause speaks in terms of commerce. Right, right. What the Court was using here was the narrower traditional definition of commerce that Justice Thomas has been urging this Court to adopt. And they were saying that we are not going to limit ourselves to that narrow definition of commerce. It would include, for example, agriculture and production. That's all going to be reachable, even though it's not commerce in the traditional sense. But what we would call it today, and I believe what the Court correctly called it in Lopez, was economic activity. Production is economic activity. Manufacturing is economic activity. It's not commerce, but it's economic activity that can be reached. And that is the activity. That's not only the activity that that uh, farmer Filburn was engaged in. That was the activity that the statute was aimed at. The statute. Why is this not economic activity, if you use the term in that broad sense? This marijuana that is grown, just like the wheat that was grown in, in Wickard, uh, since it's grown low, uh, on the farm, doesn't have to be bought elsewhere, and that makes it an economic activity. What made it an economic activity in Wickard was the fact that it was part of commercial enterprise, that it was being used on the farm, not in interstate commerce, but part of the commercial enterprise of the farm. Again, I don't think that's, that, that faithfully represents what the opinion said. I think the opinion covered including the amount that, that he consumed himself and his family consumed. The, the stat, I would, I, for whatever it's worth, it's, it's, re, it's worth remembering that the statute exempted small commercial farms. People who had backyard gardens weren't even included within the regulatory regime. The regulatory regime was about regulating or stopping or uh, restricting the supply of wheat that got into the market or that Did the opinion make a point market. of that? Pardon me? Did the opinion make a point of that? Uh, it, it, it was Did mentioned in the opinion. It was not, a, it was not a major point of this opinion. But, I, I, I don't think it was a point of the Court's analysis at all. This — I, I want to ask this question. What is your view with respect to the impact of the activities concerned in this case on the interstate market for marijuana? Is it your view that it will have no impact, that it will increase the inter, in, interstate demand or decrease the interstate demand? So there are three alternatives. Which is the one we should follow? Can I pick trivial impact? It would have well, a trivial but impact. If it, a trivial impact, is it a trivial <laughs> impact that enhances the price of marijuana or decreases the price of marijuana, in your view? It, the only effect it could have on the price would be a slight trivial reduction, if it has any effect at all, because it's going to withdraw users from the illicit drug market. And to the extent that they are now in the illicit drug market, and we don't know whether they are That now. would reduce demand and, and increase price, it seems to me. It's the other way around. Well, it would um, — Reduce demand and reduce prices, I think. If but you reduce demand, you reduce prices? Are you sure? Yes. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Um, you're right. You're, hey, uh, yeah. Yeah. Your whole argument for triviality, though, goes — your whole argument for triviality, though, goes back to your disagreement with the government about how many people are involved, because I take it you accept the, the, the assumption that the more people who are involved, if there are millions and millions — it is unlikely that this licensed activity is going to be without an effect on the market. 
So the, the whole argument boils down to how many people are going to be involved. You don't accept the government's $100,000 figure. Let me ask you a question that, that, would, that would get to a, maybe a different number, and that is, do you know how many people there are in California who are undergoing chemotherapy at any given time? I, I, I do not know the answer to that. Isn't that number going to be indicative of, of the demand for marijuana? It could be, Your Honor, but that also illustrates but, but, if, if, you, if you accept that, then there's nothing implausible about the government's 100,000 number, is there? But whatever yeah, — I don't know, because I don't know the number of people using chemotherapy. But whatever the How num- many people are there in California? What's the population? 34 million. Thank you, Justice. Lots, lots, lots and lots. Uh, the uh, 100,000 cancer patients uh, — undergoing chemotherapy does not seem like an implausible number. And, in fact, if that number is a plausible one today, its plausibility reflects, among other things, the fact that there is a controversy as to whether California's law, in fact, uh, is, is enforceable or not. And the reason — there is reason to assume that if we ruled your way, that that number would go up. So if you accept that line of argument, then, then your argument that the effect, whatever it may be, is going to be trivial, seems to me unsupportable. Am, am I missing something? Well, two things. First of all, whatever number it is, it's going to be confined to people who are sick, who are sick enough to use this. That is not an infinitely expandable number the way, for example, recreational activity is, where lots of people could just decide to do it. We're talking about people who qualify on a physician's recommendation for this particular activity. That will limit the number. But the amount of the people, the, the effect on commerce only matters if the Wickard versus Filburn aggregation principle applies to the class of activities in this case. And it does not apply to the class of activities in this case if they are non-economic, as we assert that they are. But, but the, the, that is circular reasoning because the whole, your whole argument that it's non-economic is based on the claim that there are so, the numbers are so few, the number of people involved from which you could generalize are so few that it would not be reasonable to uh, to infer an effect on the market. If there would be a large market effect, it makes no more sense to call this non-economic than Filburn's use non-economic. Lopez and Morrison stand for the proposition that activities that simply have an effect on the market are not necessary. That does not make them economic. This Court rejected that proposition, that just because an activity has an effect, an economic effect, makes the activity itself economic. It adopted a principle that's less than remote, remote, remote economic effect. It was inference upon inference upon inference. That's not what we're talking about here. But just — just have it, just ha- whether an activity is economic, you have to look to the activity itself. And an economic activity is one that's associated with sale, exchange, barter, the production of things for sale and exchange, barter. This whole court's jurisprudence since the, since the New Deal has been premised on the ability to tell the difference between economic activity on the one hand and personal liberty well, on the other hand. But your personal- whole jurisprudence in this case is premised on the assumption that we have got to identify the entire range of potential effect based on the particular character of two individuals in, in, their, in their supply of marijuana. And the whole point of this argument is that that does not seem to be a realistic premise on which to base constitutional law. 
the premise of our the premise of our economic claim is the nature of the activity involved, not necessarily its effect, but the kind of activity that it is. The idea, for example, you, prostitution is an economic activity. Marital relations is not an economic activity. We could be talking about virtually the same act. And there is a market overhang for pri- from private sexual relations to prostitution. But we don't say that because there is a market for prostitution that, therefore, everything that is not in that market is economic. We look at the activities and we separate. I can ask you one question about the activity, which yes. was brought up before, and I just might be real. I've never understood this. I- I'm not an expert. I don't honestly know if I really think about it, despite all the papers and so forth, whether it's true that medical marijuana is helpful to people in ways that pills are not. I really don't know. So I would have thought that the people like your clients, who have a strong view about it, would go to the FDA and they would say to the FDA, FDA, take this off the list. You must take it off the list if it has an accepted medical use and it isn't lacking in safety. The FDA will say yes or it will say no. If it says yes, they win. If they say no, they can come right into court and say that's an abuse of discretion. The court says yes or no. If it says yes, they win. If it says no, it must be because it wasn't an abuse of discretion in which case I, as a judge and probably as a person, would think it isn't true that marijuana has some kind of special use. So that would seem to me to be the obvious way to get what they want. That seems to me to be relevant to the correct characterization. And while the FDA can make mistakes, I guess medicine by regulation is better than medicine by referendum. So so that's — I just want to know why. Your Honor, first of all, that whole process wouldn't — to dictate what the power of Congress is to reach this activity. That's all true, but as long as that hasn't been done, don't I have to take this case on the assumption that there is no such thing as medical marijuana that's special and necessary? I, I would if simply it had ask, been done, maybe I shouldn't I would, take that. I would simply ask, Your, Your Honor, to read the amicus brief by Rick Doblin, which ex- describes the government's obstruction of scientific research that would establish the safety and efficacy of cannabis by denying supplies of, canna- of, medical- of cannabis for medical experimentation. And then I ask, Your Honor, to read the, Mer- the Institute for Medicine's report that both the government and, uh, and we have relied upon in our briefs. There has been no impeachment of this report by the National Academy of Sciences on um, the medical effect. And what they say is that, 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 this, that what information we have is that cannabis does have a substantial medical effect. Smoke cannabis does carry with it harms um, associated with it, as, the, as, as, as General Clement correctly pointed out. It does carry with it these ancillary harms. But when people are sick and people are suffering and people are dying, they may be willing to run the risk of these long-term harms in, in order to get the immediate relief, the life-saving relief that cannabis has demonstrably been able to provide. I just ask Your Honor to look at that, which is in the record. Uh, Are prescriptions under California law limited only to those people uh, with life-threatening illnesses? They are limited to a list of illnesses that are in the statute. Some of the illnesses. Some of which are life-threatening and some of which are not, Your Honor. In one plaintiff's case, I think there isn't a life-threatening. That's correct, Your Honor. She has has severe back spasms and pain that cannot be controlled by conventional medicine. She's she's a law-abiding citizen. This goes back to the issue of what the incentives there are that are created by this. This is a law-abiding woman who has never 
been interested in the illicit may, may drug I just market. ask you one procedural question, yes. and this is, this is a suit for an injunction. And it's basically an injunction against a criminal prosecution. And seizure of and, these And plants. there's an old saying in equity that courts don't enjoin criminal prosecutions. So how is your injunction suit appropriate given that old saying meant that you have to make your defense in the criminal proceeding and not enjoin its operation. Well, it, it is, it is an in, we're seeking an injunction to prevent the enforcement of the statute against these two persons, which includes forfeiture, which has already happened in this case. We've already had uh, Diane Monson's plant seized by the Drug Enforcement Authority. That is not something that we, that, it, that we, ha, that has anything to do with criminal prosecution, and yet that puts at risk her supply of medicine, the, the supply of medicine she needs to, to get by. To, to relieve it, her suffering. I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Barnett. General Clement, you have four minutes. Thank you, Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. As I understand Respondent's position, it's effectively that their clients and clients like them in their use of medical marijuana is somehow so hermetically sealed from the rest of the market on marijuana that it has no effect on that market on marijuana and no effect on the government's overall regulatory regime. And I understand that to be true largely because of state law. And one of the many problems with that mode of analysis is that the state law is not designed only to carve out those transactions that have no effect on interstate commerce or no effect on the federal regulatory regime. Proposition 215 was not passed as an exercise in cooperative federalism. It was passed as an effort to make medical marijuana lawful to possess, whether you bought it in interstate commerce, whether you bought it with the marijuana having traveled in interstate commerce, whether you bought it, whether you grew it yourself. There's a fundamental mismatch with their theory that really, I think, undermines their theory. Now, there's the question now about what kind of impact this would have on the federal enforcement scheme. Now, we in our reply brief try to use the numbers from one of respondents' own amici, and we suggest that there's 100,000 people that might be lawful medical users if their position prevails. Now, obviously, this is all an effort and sort of counterfactual speculation, so the numbers may be a bit off. But they suggest that our own government numbers are somehow better, and they cite them on page 18 of the red brief. But the only numbers on the, on the red brief for California suggest that in the four counties for which their data, there was 0.5 percent of the people used marijuana. Now, if you extend that out statewide to the 34 million people in California, that gives you 170,000 people. So the, the, their numbers using the government numbers actually give you more potentially affected people. I think in trying to figure out how many people would be affected, it's worth considering what medical conditions are covered. And this responds to Justice Kennedy's last question. Is this just limited to AIDS or people with terminal cancer? And it's not. And if you want to look at what is covered as a serious medical condition under the statute, you can turn to page 7A of the red brief, in the appendix to the red brief, and it suggests that a serious medical condition there's a catch-all at the end that includes subsection 12, any other chronic or persistent medical system that, if not alleviated, may cause serious harm to the patient's safety or physical or mental health. Now, I think that is an exceedingly broad definition of a serious medical condition for which somebody could be uh, — get a recommendation for marijuana for medical uses. Another point worth considering, considering the impact on the federal regulatory regime or the effectiveness of California in preventing any diversion, is to take a look at two cases we cite in our reply brief. One is the people against right. There's somebody who's arrested with 19 ounces, over a pound of marijuana. They're packaged such that he has one small bag in his pocket, 
six other small bags wrapped with a scale in his backpack, two other larger bags in that backpack, and then a pound wrapped in a shirt in the back of his truck. And yet the appellate court in California said that he was entitled to go to the jury with the theory that that was for medical use. The fact that he had a scale and the fact that it was packaged the way it was could be explained to the jury because he had just bought it and that he used the scale to make sure he wasn't ripped off. I think that shows that it's going to be very hard to enforce the regulatory regime. The other case in the reply brief worth mentioning is the Santa Cruz case, because that's a case where a federal district court, after Raich came out, said that it could not enforce the the DEA and and, and the Controlled Substances Act against a 250-person cooperative. And that just shows that this is not something that will be limited to one or two users at a time, but will have a substantial impact on the government's ability to enforce the Controlled Substances Act. Thank you. Thank you, General Clement. Uh, The case is submitted. Uh, We'll hear argument.